this is Ryan Martin, one of the hosts of Psychology and Stuff. My co-host Georgina and I are taking the summer off from new episodes, but we will be back in less than two months with another great season. Right now, though, we have part three of our six-part series on losing control. This is a show that my friend Chuck Ryback and I put together for my website, All the Rage Science. This episode is on mob violence. was super fun to record, especially because we got to do the first part live from the Widener Center for the Performing Arts as part of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Festival. As always, if you want to learn more about anger, visit my website, alltheragescience.com. But it becomes a mob when it's not cheering on in happiness and excitement. It's about anger, frustration, and violence. There's a lot of distance between us. I know. It feels strange. All right. I hate to be so far away from you. (laughs) That's all right. All right. Why don't we get started? So welcome, everybody. So normally at this point is when Chuck... I try and talk and he just keeps interrupting me. So we're going to... This is really weird because I do... It's like how I warm up. So if you were going to go for a jog and stretch, like I stretch by interrupting him <laughs> before we start doing anything. But I'll try not to do that. But So go ahead. Sorry. Are we... Anyway, yeah. Are you... <laughs> it's just... I got to loosen up. Are you okay. ready? Okay. I, yeah. All right. Let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs> All right. Maybe yeah. I should beatbox. Ready? Let's go. All right. Welcome to a special live episode of All the Rage, the podcast on anger and violence. We are at the beautiful Widener Center for the Performing Arts at an, on the UW-Green Bay campus, and this is part of a special Phoenix Studios live event. All five of our Phoenix Studios podcasts are performing in short bursts tonight, and we are first up. So I'm Ryan Martin, psychologist and anger researcher here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. And I want to introduce my co-host. He is a poet, an English professor, and he's the dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Put your hands together for Dr. Chuck Ryback. Thanks. I appreciate that. (laughs) How's it going, Chuck? (laughs) It's going great. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm excited to be here. This is really dope. We're in the Widener Center. It's sweet. Yeah, no, I like this. This is better. We're normally in a really small, smelly, hot room. Yeah. I mean, it's a really great place. It's just It's smelly because we're in there, right? It's not naturally smelly. We bring the funk. (laughs) Right. We bring the funk is what it's about. Mm -hmm. So I told you this off air, but somebody gave me the finger on my way to work. I love that. I start the day like that every day and <laughs> every put, day? yeah pretty much wait giving people the finger or giving the finger receiving the okay. finger mm. are your kids in the car no they're not there's okay. a guy that stands outside of the starbucks at military okay. and gives everybody the finger hmm. that goes by and at first i thought it was personal that it was me and i because i wasn't doing anything and he gave me the finger and i was so surprised that i just drove by i'm like i remember what? talking yeah about like, this, what, actually. what did i do and then right. the next day i saw him <clears throat> flipping off a different person a woman who was driving by who looked equally confused and but then I realized that I mean I was sad because I wasn't special anymore that it wasn't yeah it really wasn't about me I thought that it was but anyway about you what were you saying (laughs) would it help if I gave you the the finger sometimes yeah just you though no one else um, are there young? There so, are. I'm so sorry. I, didn't, <laughs> I did not see you until just now. Okay. <laughs> that there is a child here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's know, all right. I, so let's keep it clean for now. Plans are changing yeah. as we speak. Yeah. Well, so my kids were in the car, and it was in full disclosure. I think it was my fault. Um, I, I was at a four-way stop. This person was coming at me, and they were turning left, and I didn't realize it. And I started to go, and then realized, stopped, did the little like sorry you know mm-hmm. wave 
and they responded by giving me the finger and mouthing the words that go along with the finger. Oh, man. Yeah. That's so It felt great. really, really bad. I, like, I was like, oh, man, I was, mm. well, I, you know, I tried to say I was sorry. Mm. Like, so... I'm an English professor, so I really appreciate communication in all forms. <laughs> okay. Including okay. that, like when okay. people flip you off wow. with both arms, like yeah. the whole, I oh. really, it's so great. It's like the people at the airport who wave airplanes in, but they're uh, giving you the finger. Well, I had an existential crisis about mm-hmm. civility. <laughs> so it, had a very, it led to a very different outcome. I had to yeah. like talk to my kids the rest of the way. I was like, see, this is the problem, guys. I said I was sorry, and then they still gave me wow. the finger. Wow. Yeah, with my kids, I'm like, did you see that? That yeah. was great. Well, then, so the, the really troubling part is that I was... Uh, so I thought my kids knew what the finger was. So when I, oh. yeah, so all of a sudden I said that person gave me the finger and then my youngest said, which finger? And mm. I was like, well, the middle one. And he's like, what does that mean? And so then I was like, well, it's just not a very nice thing to say to people. And then Reese, who does know what the finger mm. is, explained it to him. Ooh. So this person also introduced that. Did you tape that explanation? I'd like to hear that <laughs> I should. I, I don't have it. He said okay. it means, and then he whispered something, which is what Ooh. he does. But you know, I know what it means, okay. so I don't know why he was trying to keep it from me. But, I actually yeah. don't know what it means. Yeah. That's the problem, is I want to uh, know what it means. I still well, don't know what it I'll means. I'll have him mm-hmm. whisper it to you next I mean, time. I know what together. the words are, but yeah. I, don't, I just don't know how they apply to me in my skill set or my life. Or, right, okay. But we yeah. should probably move on. <laughs> okay. So can Wait, I tell you? No, can I interrupt you? Yes, please. I heard that you were on the BBC today. Is that true? I was. Uh, yes, it was. Can you yeah. talk about that? I sure can. Yeah. So I actually had kind of forgot this was happening, but uh, a couple months ago I did an interview with the, with the BBC um, from, our, from campus here, and uh, they're putting out a three-part, I think, podcast mm-hmm. called Why Are We So Angry? And uh, today was part one, and they asked me why we're so angry. That so. sounds awesome. It was pretty fun. Uh, it was really cool. So. so you're an anger researcher who gets startled by people giving you the finger. Yeah. Okay. No, that is a, that weird. is a little weird. It you're is. right. I yeah. think it's, so. It was the existence. I don't. I don't so much get startled as so much as I did have that moment of like, I said I was sorry, man. Like, I, come on, be yeah. cool. It just seems like your field research game needs that to I, be stepped up. <laughs> okay. You know, so. you know what I'm going to do tomorrow is I'm going to intentionally like cut people off. And just see how they react and get used to it. That's an amazing idea. I'll write a paper on this. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Okay. So we are a good solid... Seven minutes? Seven minutes Mm -hmm. into our show, and we haven't actually talked about the topic yet. There is Um, a snooze button up on this clock, though. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nice. So so here's the thing. All of the shows tonight are tying their discussion to Frankenstein, largely because that play is going to be performing here at the Widener Center uh, in a few weeks, uh, less than two weeks, I think. Um, so, Chuck, this is episode three of our special series on losing control, right? Mm-hmm. So what have we talked about so far in episodes one and two? We've, we are, have, you qu- are you quizzing me? I am asking, do you remember? No. <laughs> yeah, well, about losing control. You yeah. asked me if I had ever lost control, and I struggled to answer the yeah. question. I know. I'm still thinking about it, so I'll get back to you. Okay. I do. I'm, my goal over the, ne- over the course of tonight, but also the sixth episode, is to get an example of you mm-hmm. really losing your cool. Okay, we'll work on that. Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, but we've been talking about why people lose control. We yes. did episodes on, uh, we, we watched a bunch of YouTube videos yep. and we, of people like losing their cool and then we, we unpacked those a little bit. Um, we talked to Jason Cowell, who's way back there. He's gonna be on later tonight. Hey, Jason, woohoo! 
Um, and uh, that was kind of lukewarm for Jason. I'm not going to lie. I think he deserves more than that, but we'll get it later. Um, so uh, we talked about the brain. Uh, today, as we tie things to Frankenstein in the way I, best, I know best, we're going to talk about mob violence. Mm-hmm. So Let's do it. Yeah. So uh, before we get into it, one of the things we've been talking about as we've been preparing for this is how difficult it is to sort of define mob violence what is a mob even right so this is the definition that we are using and for the record we unpack this in like segment two which is an interview with a social psychologist named dr kate burns that you'll hear you won't the the hear audience won't hear this but the listening audience will um which is an interview we had I, i did with her yesterday um but here's the definition we're using it's a large unruly group intent on disorder or causing trouble or violence Hmm. so I will admit, and this is because it's been a long time since I read the book, but when I think of Frankenstein, I think of the movies, and I actually feel like that's one of the most salient pop culture examples of what a mob is. People with pitchforks. Yep. And torches. And torches, right? (laughs) And capri pants. And capri pants. I think there's a picture on the screen. Well, no. That's a picture of right before the mob. So if we were to watch Mm -hmm. just a few more minutes. uh, People with pitchforks. People... Did you say capri pants? Yeah, because the guys always have those pants that only go mid-calf. Aren't those capri pants or just peasant pants? Peasant pants. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's, I, I mean, I don't know what their official name is. I don't know. I, I don't know what you would shop for. Someone then. Google that for yes. us. If I was, yeah, if I wanted to buy that and I was on Amazon, what would I look for? Right. 19th I'd... century capri pants. Capri pants. Okay, yes. great. No worries. I think so, of Shrek, actually, yeah. of, of villagers showing up to get Shrek out of the swamp. Okay, and I think of Beauty and the Beast too, yeah, which I think means that we both have young kids. Yeah, D- Disney <laughs> is all about mobs. It's all about right? mob violence, which is yeah. why one gathers at Disney World yeah. daily. Are there other examples from literature, television, things like that? Oh my God, many. I okay, mean, let's much, let's hear. Them. Well, how much time do we have? Well, like seven more minutes. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> Spend all of that on literature. So I'm an American literature person. Faulkner is one of my favorite authors. Um, Anybody ever read Light in August? If you haven't, do that tonight. Um, so, but it has. I mean, wait a, till the show's <laughs> over, though. Don't right, yeah. just start right now. Um, we'll put the Kindle version up on the screen, and it has a real traditional American approach to this, in that it is a um, what we would call a lynch mob. Uh, the main character's name is Joe Christmas. Boy, I, this is a total spoiler alert. But in Faulkner, it doesn't matter. Um, where a group of people in the town, in order to take justice in their own hands, go to a prison and murder him in the, in the prison. Um, Don DeLillo is a great writer about crowds. If everybody knows Don DeLillo, he's really interested in crowd consciousness and identity and how um, crowds or mobs, when they're together, have an actual intelligence of their own. Um, and that there's, that's part of what the, I don't know, the appeal of it is, is turning yourself over to a larger intention and consciousness. And yeah, many examples. And that's one of the questions that I've been having about this. One of the things we're studying over the course of this series is this notion of whether or not we are actually ourselves when we're angry, right? This idea and that some of those those YouTube examples we talked about in our first episode, um, but also some of the stuff we talked about with Jason in our second is you know this notion of like do we do we operate the same way? Are the things we say more are they accurate? Are they honest? And, um, and one of the things we talk about in the, in the segment coming up is this notion of deindividuation. Like when you're in a group, you often 
lose yourself a mm-hmm. little bit. And so I have an example of this that I think is, is kind of interesting, which is, um, so back, I guess this would have been, I don't know, 10 years ago, um, this guy, Chris Reichert, who is a Tea Party guy, right? He was at uh, uh, an anti-healthcare rally. Mm-hmm. And um, he starts berating uh, a Parkinson's patient who is sitting there holding up a sign saying... I remember that. Do you remember this? I do. So, um, and he starts throwing money at him, like dollar bills, mm-hmm. pelting him with that and screaming like... I'm, uh, you know, here, here, you want a handout? Take this, take this. And then he yells, but, it, but it, I decide. It's on me. I decide mm-hmm. who, who takes my money or something like that. And part of what makes this interesting, though, is that he was identified, right? Somebody found out who he was, and they went and interviewed him afterwards. And he said, um, I snapped. I absolutely snapped, and I can't explain it any other way. He's got every right to, uh, to do what he did, and some may say I did too, but what I did was shameful. And he also said this is the only time he'd been to a rally like that mm-hmm. and that he would never go again, um, that, he was, uh, that he essentially lost himself. And mm-hmm. so what do you think of that? I mean, this is something we've been talking about. What do you think yep. about not just that example but just in general? It sounds like you're asking if, if I went to a place where there was a big crowd that got unruly, would I do something like flip a car over? Or tear down goalposts you or set or, something on fire. You or anyone. Do you the think? answer to all three of those questions is no. No, you would not. I would not. Okay. I'm just not physically capable of a couple of those things. <laughs> um, but beyond that, I I don't know. There, I, I don't buy it. I think right. there is a responsibility element that mm-hmm. remains right. in some ways. I, I th- it sounds like an excuse to me. Right. Well, there's a whole uh, situation selection piece, Mm -hmm. too, in that I would probably not go to places where that might be drawn out of me, even if I, you know, that like I would Mm -hmm. avoid those types of things. Um, Unless we're, you know, unless we're just really talking about groups. And so the thing that I would say about mob as a, to me, it's more of a linguistic thing than it is a real thing and that it doesn't. Um, to sound like an English professor, because that's what I do sometimes, is I don't think the word mob has any denotative relevance anymore, that it is entirely connotative. It's all its associations, and it's meant to be a pejorative. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I do think that there are groups that you could call a mob. Like, to me, Mm -hmm. excuse me, white supremacists are always going to be a mob, um, because there really is no, there is no goal. There is no, I mean, you can't have the goal of being white, I guess. Like, hey, I showed up, we're here, and I'm white, hooray. Um, That what you really have there is a fantasy. Um, And that I I think you can objectively say that some groups of people with bad intentions are a mob because their intentions are terrible. Um, But then the term is, as a pejorative, is really just a way for a lot of groups to apply to other groups um, which is basically three or more people that get together that are upset about something, um, we're going to call them a mob to sort of devalue who they are. Like, oh, that unruly mob is outside again protesting because they want clean drinking water. You know, <laughs> they're so bloodthirsty. Right. No, they're just thirsty. Right. Um, so, Outstanding. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's true. I, I mentioned before the show, I've been accused of being part of a mob because I've been involved. Really? Well, because I've been at protests mm-hmm. that I thought were peaceful and, and not a group that was unruly in any way. But the other side would argue that we're yeah. a mob and, or that we are thugs, uh, mm-hmm. that sort of. I mean, I think coming together with other people for things that are positive, that come from self-worth for yourself mm-hmm. and for others, 
that's just being a good person, you know, and getting together with other people for no other purpose than to demean them Mm -hmm. or attack them or for the sake of violence is not that. That is a mob. Right. And I think there are things we can safely identify as such, but still we'll go back and forth with others. So like the... The example I like a lot is when protesters shut down the World Trade Organization meeting in Seattle back in, I don't know, somebody in the crowd can yell the date out if they know that. Um, and they were referred to as a mob because they showed up and wanted to protest how sort of banking organizations and corporate power could produce inequality. And wow, that's a horrible right. thing to protest. And look at the <laughs> look at the mob. Look what they're doing. Yep. We're Sorry. getting no. That's all right. We're getting the signal to wrap up this that's part not true. of the they conversation. Look at the clock. We it's right over there. She just held she up give us hands. Oh yeah. hi. <laughs> that was either three or two. I don't look know if the, the thumb the is included, is, but three. The mob okay. is yelling at yes, us. They're I trying know. to get us out <laughs> exactly. of here right now. So, um, so we're going to wrap up this segment here. But Are before we? we do, do you have anything you want to tell people, Chuck? Anything else? I just went on a long rant. I want you to say something first. You want me to say I want something? you to tell them something. I was just ranting. No, and I'm with you. I think the question is, so as part of that definition. Are you with me? Yes, I am. Are we I a two-person mob? We are a two-person mob, mm-hmm. if there is such a thing. Mm-hmm. I don't have a picture. There for. is. I was listening to Mob Deep on the way over here. It's a rap group from a little ways back. It's only two guys. Okay. And they're a mob. <laughs> so... All right. Well, then we are a mob, but it's, we it are. was spelled M-O-B-B, right? I it mean, is, but I think it just <laughs> means it's like an extra. Oh, okay. Like an emphasis. Okay, cool. It's rap for I think, italics. So here's my response to, to what you said. Mm-hmm. I think the question is, like, you know, when we think back to that definition, causing trouble or violence, I think yes. it's causing trouble for who? Whom? You're the English mm-hmm. professor. Was I supposed to say who or whom there? I'm going to say Sure. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. All right. So causing trouble for which other group, you know, and because that's really what it comes down to is Mm -hmm. I was, I mean, as a, when I was protesting, I was trying to cause trouble for someone, right? Mm -hmm. It was just, it was politicians mainly. But I don't think it's trouble. Like social justice is not trouble. Right. It's just right. Yes. You know, it's just right. Like Charlottesville was a mob. And protesting for labor rights in the Capitol in Madison was the right thing to do. Right. Oh, I agree. So, yeah. That's why Even though there. they were referred to as a mob, right, because mm-hmm. they held hands and sang songs like right. mobs do in Disney <laughs> movies. Like mobs do, right? I know. They were That's a Disney it. mob yeah. in the capital of Wisconsin. Yep. I left the pitchfork at home. I can I tell you that much. You definitely All should right. do that. So we really are going to no, wrap up the segment she's here. She's still holding up fingers. Yeah, she, she gave us the finger. <laughs> yeah, I got another finger. Look Dang that. it. That's One two. One finger. So do you have anything you want to, where can people find you on Twitter, Chuck? You can find me driving by Starbucks in the morning around <laughs> 7.45. If you'd like to give me the finger, that'd be great. Yes. I'll see you there. Um, I would I'm, do anything if you all were outside Starbucks tomorrow. Yeah. I so much. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Chuck Ryback. It's R-Y-B-A-K. No C in my last name. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know. Other than that, I'm just around. He what is great you? on Twitter. Lots of fun. I'm at RyCMart, R-Y-C-Mart. When we come back, we will keep the conversation going with some experts on groups, mobs, and more. Thank you so much, Chuck Ryback. Thank you to our fabulous audience. And thank you to the Widener Center. If you are listening at home, we'll be right back. All right. We are here with Dr. Kate Burns, a social psychologist at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. How are you, Kate? 
I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for being here. So we've been talking about mob violence in this episode, and there's no way really to talk about mobs without also talking about groups first and how we define groups. And so give me a sense for how, I guess, social psychologists define groups. So we think about groups as like a group of people, probably like right. three people or more that have some sort of like common goal, common fate. Um, so thinking about that kind of different than like, you know, like a just a collective. So like thinking about people working out at a gym, they're all doing the same thing, but they don't have that common purpose where they're really interacting. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what when I so I used to talk about this a little bit in a course I taught and it was always difficult because like so the definition I would use is, you know, two or more people perceived as related because of their interactions, membership in the same category or a common fate, like you just said. And but there's a lot in there that you have to kind of unpack a little bit to try and f get to it, right? So there's, you know, you know, doing something or being something together. It's like I think about, you know, when I take the bus home that I'm on a bus with a bunch of other people. And so in some sense, it feels like we're a group. We're on our way home. But th that feels different than if we were on a, like all going to the same place, like mm -hmm. if we we're all going to a football game or if we we're all doing something. So there's something about like that that unity around purpose piece or like yesterday when i was meeting with chuck and our intern haley we're sitting in a coffee shop and we're talking about groups and saying like are we a group right now like the people in this coffee shop and um and so how do we how do how do we decide like how do we know when someone is a when when, a, when it's a group versus just a bunch of people who are all together yeah, and I think it is that common purpose with the interaction together, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, like, if you were just in the coffee shop together, but you're really not interacting with any of those people, it doesn't really right. seem like it has its groupiness, um, you know, even though you're all drinking coffee. So I think right. that having that that chance to connect and that chance to be able to, you know, work towards those shared goals okay. is really the, the key part. Right, and there's got to be some sort of unifying element above and beyond um the fact that we're doing something similar, right? That maybe, because I think again about like, okay, so a football game, right? And the people there cheering for, whether it's the Packers or whatever team. Um, and, you know, thinking about that, is that a, like they're not necessarily interacting with one another, but mm -hmm. they're there supporting the same cause. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if football is a cause, I don't think it is, but, yeah. um, you know, but cheering on the same team or whatever, or maybe a group of people at a rally, like a political rally or something like that. It's like, they're not necessarily interacting with one another, but they're there for the same reason. And they're supporting the same cause. Is that part of this? Yeah, I could see it almost like on a continuum, right? And so mm -hmm. I think that like, because they have more of that shared goals, so you're supporting the same team is a little bit higher than just being at a coffee shop drinking right. coffee, right? And then going to a rally because you have a purpose like uniting together is like mm -hmm. kind of even higher. And so thinking about like how how groupy basically they are, like right. it's kind of like higher in that like shared purpose by right. by that continuum. Right. So the the and I know this kind of feeds into your research specifically, your expertise specifically in a in a second. But it, there's something about those similarities that they share. Like, and probably the more similarities you share with with the people in this collective, probably the more likely you are to perceive yourself as a group. The other piece of this too is, and this plays into sports and also political rallies. Um, is the presence of an outgroup. So can you define, or the existence, I should say, of an outgroup. Can you define outgroup for people? 
Yeah, so we talk in Stereotyping and Prejudice about this idea of in-group versus out-group. And so an in-group is kind of like people who share a common characteristic. And so whether that's like a demographic characteristic like gender or race or age, um, and then thinking about the out-group is people who are dissimilar on whatever that category would be. So, you know, it's a little tricky in that there are many ways we can be defined, right? Many ways that we can be kind of carved up in terms of those demographics. So, you know, that in-group, out-group distinction is a little bit flexible depending on kind of what's salient at that time so you know is it gender is it race you know is it social class but but that's kind of the the broad strokes of the in-group versus out-group so to use sort of the football game piece right the out-group would then be whoever supports the other team that they're playing right so if you're cheering for one team who you know the the opposition their supporters are the out-group, right? Which is normally not necessarily how you might carve people up into groups. It's like, well, there's Packer fans and Vikings fans, you know, like that. Is that an example of that? Yeah, and so thinking about in that context, right, that the the team who's a fan of who, that's really salient, right? right. Whereas if we're in a different context, then, yeah, I don't usually ask people, you know, <laughs> who do you support? What, what's your favorite football right. team is my first question. Yeah. And so, but at a political rally then, maybe, you know, the political party or even – it, it might not even be the party if it's a, you're there for a particular cause then whoever is on the other side of that particular cause even if they're people that you normally share a lot in common with uh, are part of that out group so so can you maybe highlight some of the important research on how groups behave I know there's some classics here um, as far as how groups behave and, and how it applies to violence and anger yeah, so I thought we could talk a little bit about this de-individuation piece because yes. that seems to be kind of a big thing um, for our groups. And uh, actually, Phil Zimbardo, um, you know, famous for other things right. um, besides um, some of the you know, prison experiment, but that he also looked at de-individuation. And so this idea that, right, when we can kind of feel more anonymous um, mm-hmm. when we're in that group and, you know, we also have, you know, groups can kind of also make us feel that sense of physiological arousal um, by being around other people, then that can actually lead people to do things they wouldn't normally do. So things kind of getting out of hand. So whether that's like a, you know, kind of a mob overthrowing a police car or, you know, starting a fire, you know, things Mm -hmm. that we just, we wouldn't normally associate people doing because of kind of getting lost in that moment, lost in the mob, lost in the crowd. Well, so I'm going to throw out an example of this. Um, so I, I once talked to a friend, and this this helps me understand this, because I once talked to this guy who, who um, I knew in college, and he said, he told me he was at Mardi Gras. And I said, oh, how was it? And he said, well, actually, I spent three days in jail. And when I asked him to elaborate on why, he said that early on in the, the event, he was sitting on a bench and sort of like violence broke out or, or wildness broke out around him. And he said people started like trying to lift the bench up off the ground. And so he got off it and he said for whatever reason that he couldn't really explain, he joined in and they ripped the bench out of the ground and threw it through the window of a store. And he, it was so strange because this is not someone I would think, now I didn't know this person well, but this is not someone that I would think of as being someone who picks up a bench and throws it through a store. And he said, his explanation was that he got caught up in the moment and that it was just like people doing wild things and he joined in and he did this thing. And and the way in which the police dealt with things like that at the time, at least in Mardi Gras, is that they put, they sent him to jail for three days and then they let him out and they never like actually booked him or anything. They just wanted to 
put an end to his Mardi Gras experience. And so he went home. Um, and so that was like what this, what this was like. So it sounds like, well, that might be an extreme case of this. That is really that sort of de-individuation process, right? The, the anonymity and getting caught up in the, in the group and mob mentality. Is that fair? It is, yeah, and I actually do a little fun thing in class where I ask students. Where you ask people to pick up a bench. I do, and we all work together, and they get extra credit for working well. No, um, where they have to, they say, like, okay, if you could be completely invisible, you know, for 24 hours and you could do anything, what would you do? And I say, you know, disguise your handwriting. And so it's supposed to be, like, this de-individuation task. Mm-hmm. And so do you want to guess what the most popular answer is for students uh, like, say? steal something from someone? Yeah, it's supposed to be like rob a bank. Rob a bank? That would have been my guess. Yeah, and so the person I got this idea from, like, used to teach in a prison, and so he said that that, like, percentage was similar for, like, what prisoners would say for those (laughs) types of, of responses. So I think it does a nice job of kind of demonstrating, right, like, that power of the situation, right, and not something right. about a personality factor, but, right. you know, looking at how we could get caught up, right, especially if we think that we're more anonymous. Very cool. That's really interesting. So let's talk about um, your background in stereotyping and prejudice, because I know you used to teach a course for us here at UWGB on stereotyping and prejudice. How does that maybe play itself out in some of these situations? There's some, obviously, the in-group, out-group piece. Is there, are there other ways? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think we had talked a little bit before about the uh, robber's cave study of trying mm-hmm. to kind of form a group and can we kind of form in-groups and out-groups that didn't exist already. And so kind of taking, you know, a summer camp scenario gone bad, I guess, <laughs> with trying to look at it in terms of stereotyping and prejudice. And so they basically formed two groups and the groups didn't really know each other and they kind of, um, you know, had them bond over a series of events and then brought those two groups um, together and all of a sudden they had them engage in these different um, competitions and so then there was really kind of this in-group out-group formed of kind of this Mm -hmm. hatred towards that other group and so um, kind of having them do you know these zero-sum games where there could be only one winner or one loser and you know this kind of heightened competition and kind of led to some increased aggression among the kids of you know trying to steal things back and forth um you know food fights so like you know aggression in terms of the, right. uh, the child level kind of aggression <laughs> with, you know. How many of them picked up benches? That's right. No, no benches. No, okay. no, no prison kind of a thing. And so I think that you know we can. For, the, I think the interesting thing from stereotypes and prejudice is that you can form an outgroup basically on anything, right? Like it doesn't mm. have to be an established demographic that they've done things with just you know different colors, right? Yellow versus green, or you know mm. just these different teams. So I think that's the cool, but also the scary part right. of all of it. I think you did an activity when I went to your class one time where you had everyone wearing tennis shoes go to one side of the room and then people not wearing tennis shoes go to the other. Can you describe that? I did, yeah. So that, yeah, again, so it's kind of this artificial characteristic. I had them form groups based on who is wearing tennis shoes versus not. You can also do it as like who's wearing jeans versus, you know, not jeans. They're still wearing pants of some right. form, but just jeans versus no jeans. And then um, you had them get into these groups, and then you kind of have to say, like, okay, can you, like, brainstorm about why the other group is the way that they are, right? And so it starts off like, well, maybe people in jeans, they want to be comfortable. People in tennis shoes, you know, they're athletic. And But then they, you kind of start forming these greater leaps, these greater generalizations, you know, just based on what, 
you know, maybe they're kind of like lazy, you know, it's not right. just that they want to be comfortable. And then, you know, you can kind of see it kind of spiral out of control. And this mm-hmm. is just like, you know, five minute thing, just thinking about how all right. the different messages we receive actually in right. society and how that can get internalized. Well, I think one of the things I remember, because I participate in the activity, one of the things I remember is that that people would would come up with a lot of sort of diverse explanations for their own group. You know, that would be like, there's a whole lot of reasons why someone might wear dress shoes instead of tennis shoes or whatever. But for the other group, it was sort of like, no, there's one, they're all the same, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that whole group all is sort of linked by the fact that they're lazy or, or whatever. So very good. Anything else we should know before we finish up? Um, well, the other the other thing I was going to say, just because Halloween is around the corner, and yes, so there is. has also been a little bit of de-individuation with Halloween really? as well with kids, of telling kids that they can have, you know, one treat from the bucket, but mm-hmm. then kind of leaving, and then, you know, kids are wearing costumes, right? Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more on the anonymous side. Um, and so they did things where they said the kids' names versus not, and so uh-huh. when kids don't have their names called out and they're in the group, they were way more likely to take more than what they were supposed to really? from that treat bucket. So some that explains so we once had all of our candy stolen from our we left it out and yeah. we did as well when yeah. I yeah, when I lived in an apartment. Did not know. We yeah. didn't fingerprint it or anything, you know. <laughs> I actually was I guess I shouldn't say all of it because I left a whole bunch inside thinking that might possibly happen uh-huh. and then it did. So I didn't I didn't assume the best of our neighborhood children and they lived up to my expectations. <laughs> <laughs> so wonderful. Well, thank you so very much, Kate, for uh, taking the time to talk with us. This has been really interesting. In this next segment, we're going to talk with one of the authors of the chapter, Mob Violence, Cultural Societal Sources, Instigators, Group Processes, and Participants. Dr. Lori H. Rosenthal is the Associate Dean for the School of Humanities, Education, Justice, and Social Sciences, and she's an Associate Professor of Psychology. She has a PhD in Social Personality Psychology from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, you know, we're talking about this chapter that you wrote, uh, and uh, one of the first things you do in this chapter is run through some definitions. And so I was hoping we could do that. One of the things we've had a, a hard time doing in this episode is actually defining what a mob is and how we kind of distinguish it from some other related concepts, right? Groups, riots, crowds, that sort of thing. Okay. Well, why don't I start then with, with those other concepts and lead into how, how a mob is very particular and different. Um, so, so the first, the most basic one that you mentioned is a group. And a group is just any number of people greater than one who are going to get together with some kind of common purpose. Um, and that can be a really short-lived nominal purpose, like I'm standing at a sidewalk waiting to cross the street and there are four other people with me. For that moment in time, we're a group, even though we're going to disperse once the light changes. Um, and then the distinction between a group and a crowd, and a mob is a very particular type of crowd, which is why I'm adding that one, is really one of size. So a crowd is just a much larger group. And I would say that the cutoff between a group and a crowd is, is around 30 people. Different researchers have quantified it in slightly different ways, but 30 is that number where you start to get the sense that I'm not going to actually talk to or interact with every single person within this group of people. Um, that's where you cross over from the I could potentially meet everybody to I can't. Um, the other characteristic that makes it a crowd is that, again, people have a common purpose. 
Now, generally, in, in terms of sort of historical research on social behavior, we have defined a crowd as being in physical proximity, but I think in today's society, with all of our social media connections, a crowd can actually exist in the virtual world as well. So a mob, then, is a very specific type of crowd. It's an expressive crowd. The purpose, that common purpose that a mob gets together around is expressing emotion. In the sense that now, now I should say that, that crowds can express emotions in positive ways, but mobs in particular are expressing negative emotions and there's a connotation of violence. So a mob is defined as expressly there is either an intent to commit violence, a likelihood to commit violence, or they are actually committing violence. That violence that they commit then is the riot. So the mob are, is the group of people that are committing violence. The riot is the actual violence that they're doing, the behavior they're engaging in. Okay. So, and this, uh, my next question was going to be about, you know, are mobs always violent? It sounds like they don't necessarily have to be violent. They might be, ex the intent to express violence is good enough. Is that fair? That's fair, yes. The, the, yeah. It's not a pro-social group, though. There is always some gotcha. leaning towards violence. They're either thinking about violence, they're talking about violence, there's a potential for violence. They're not getting together to um, engage in like, like a political rally just to to cheer on a candidate or um, do a peaceful protest. There's there is that element that is leading it towards violence. And that's you just use a really important word I think for the defining purposes as as um, Chuck and I have been talking about this. We've talked about how I I have been accused of being part of a mob, you know, because I would attend a protest. Um, you know, that politicians mm -hmm. would maybe describe me as being in a mob. Um, and, you know, that we were, that's part of how we were trying to, or struggling a little bit to differentiate is, and, and I think that word pro-social is really important, that a, that a mob is essentially by definition not pro-social. Right. Uh, and, and you can distinguish that then because a crowd, you can have an expressive crowd where the purpose is getting together around an emotion which might be cheering on a, a political candidate or a sporting event. But it becomes a mob when it's not cheering on in happiness and excitement. It's about anger, frustration, and violence. Okay. So a definition that we had been kind of using as we talked about this was the notion of like an unruly group intent on disorder or causing trouble or violence. Mm -hmm. And it, yep. it sounds... And I think one of the places where I was getting a little stuck is this notion of causing trouble and thinking about how, as, as you know, when I'm protesting something, I am actually intent on causing trouble, just in a, you know, a trouble for a very specific group of people who are, you mm -hmm. know, pushing policies that I disagree with. And, but that is maybe a different sort of causing trouble, or maybe you pull that from the definition and think of just largely, um, uh, the violence piece or, or defining trouble well, things differently think, than I'm defining. If you think of, of um, trying to influence policy and mm -hmm. you're protesting because there are policies within the government that you disagree with and you want them to create different policies or you want to impact the laws that, that our, um, our politicians are mm -hmm. going to be enacting. Um, you're actually, like creating laws and creating policy is not trouble. That's Right. what our lawmakers are supposed to do. So you're trying to inform them what the public believes 
in terms of creating those policies. Your intent is not to go out and, and inform them by overturning cars or beating someone right. up. You're trying to say, I'm out here, I have a sign, I'm showing you how many people feel this way so that you can use that information to create a policy that reflects our democracy. Right. Okay. So that I don't is, see that, that as really trouble helpful. in the sense of a mob that is going out because they want to, um, they do want to hurt someone or a, they want to hurt a group of people, whether it's physically hurt or they want to scare or sort of emotionally kind of terrorize a group. Right. Gotcha. Okay. That's a that different kind of trouble. Helpful. Yeah. So what are the circumstances in which mobs are most likely to emerge? Um, you know, what do those instigating events look like? What are some of the characteristics of mob participants? Okay. So first, I actually, I, I think there are two ways to, to think about what makes a mob likely to come about. One are the larger societal or social conditions and the very specific instigating events that you're referring to. But I kind of wanted to start with the psychological effects that okay. there are things that being in a crowd kind of push people into mob behavior and I find those more interesting. And so that's, I, I, it's hard to put a handle on, on what those instigating conditions are because they've been so varied across different mob instances. But the psychological processes that make a mob form out of those instigating conditions are surprisingly common across all of these events. So I think that it's, it's almost more helpful to understand what those are. And so first, there's, there's the emotions that get aroused within a large mm -hmm. crowd or a mob, they have a, an element of being contagious, almost like an illness is contagious. So if I'm feeling anger and I'm in a crowd, I will display that anger. And as I display that anger, the people around me are going to start picking up on it. And then the people around them are going to start picking up on it. And so emotion spreads through a crowd in in a way. We actually call it emotional contagion because it, it looks like the way an illness or a virus would spread through the crowd. Um, there's, there was an, actually a really fascinating study that um, two researchers did where they looked at um, a person who was experiencing an emotion, but it, it, was, it wasn't really clear what emotion they were experiencing. Because if you think about emotions, if I'm, if I'm feeling anger or if I'm feeling surprise, it's really the same physical feeling. I, I'm going to get a burst of adrenaline. I'm going to, my heart rate's going to go up. I'm going to get a little shaky. And so what happens is people look around at the social environment around them and interpret what that emotion is that they're feeling. So if I'm feeling this this sort of heightened emotional arousal, but and I look around and everyone around me is angry and yelling and screaming, I'm going to feel anger and I'm going to start yelling and screaming and joining along with them. If the people around me are smiling and cheering and dancing, I'm going to imitate those behaviors and I'm going to feel that emotion as well. So emotions are contagious in that as a gets aroused, we look for cues around us. And when we're making those kinds wow. of interpretations, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just just saying, wow, that's really, really interesting to think of from that way. <laughs> okay. So so actually, and, and then as we're interpreting those behaviors around us and, and we're interpreting possibly something that's going on in our society, one of the other phenomena that happens is people get together into groups and crowds and start talking to each other is we find that their viewpoints get more extreme and more polarized than before the group discussion. So as I start sharing ideas about my opinions with someone else, and they have different ideas and different opinions, but leaning along the same direction, we become more and more extreme. 
And so as you get people who are coalescing and, and joining together around a common purpose and they start sharing their reasons for that common purpose, you find them getting more and more um, extreme from what they had been to begin with. So I might join a rally because I really think people should um, create a policy around a particular thing. And then I start talking to other people. I'm going to get more and more invested in this policy. And I'm going to think it's more and more important than I might have if I had just sat in my own living room and wrote, written a letter. And then there are some other sort of more scary psychological processes. And when we're in a group, we tend to experience a sense where we don't have personal responsibility over our actions and over the outcomes that happen. We call this diffusion of responsibility. If I'm alone and I'm making a decision about my actions, then I have sole responsibility for that decision. If I see someone who needs help and I help them, that was that's me. I did that. If I see someone and I hurt them, that's that's my fault. That's I have responsibility for that. If I'm in a group, though, I feel that I share that responsibility with everyone else. So if I'm in a crowd and I witness that somebody's having an emergency, I'm going to share the responsibility of helping with others, and I might choose not to help because I think someone else maybe has better qualifications or or I just think, well, four people are going to go run and help. I'll just stand back and let somebody else do it. I don't bear the brunt of that. And there was a study on hurting others that um, – you might, your listeners might be familiar with, it's the Milgram study of obedience. Mm -hmm. And within that study, Milgram required that people hurt someone else. He required that they give electric shocks to someone else and hurt them. Now, nobody was really hurt in the experiment. It was all entirely staged. But the participants felt like they were hurting other people. And what he found was that as people were, were delivering these shocks, at some point he had the person who was supposedly getting them scream in pain, and people would stop wait a minute, I, I can't, that, the, the person's hurt over there, I can't do that. And the researcher would say, I'm sorry, the experiment requires that you continue. If the experimenter took responsibility for that decision, people were willing to continue. And and you can see it in video footage of these, these subjects as they are sitting there, they will say, well, if you're going to take responsibility for this, then okay, I'll keep hurting the person. But they wouldn't do it if it was their responsibility. And you see this in crowds and mobs because people have this sort of sense that, well, I can't get in trouble for this. It's not me doing this. The whole group is doing this. And the last one that I'll mention is um, a process called de-individuation, which is where when we are in a large group, we, we kind of lose a sense of ourselves as an individual. And we see ourselves more as, um, as, as being a part of that group. And so, we sometimes act in ways that are that that are not things that we would have done on our own. And there are very specific factors within a group that make that process of de-individuation, that loss of our sense of our own sort of self-awareness and our own individuality. So there are some features that make that more likely. The size of the group is important. As the group gets larger, I feel less like an individual. Mm -hmm. um, and the the how anonymous I am within that group is also going to increase that process of de-individuation. So if I if it's at night and it's dark and I'm less identifiable, I'm going to be more de-individuated, more likely to do something that that is potentially going to harm other people. Uh, if um, if I'm dressed similarly to the other people in the mob, it, where I become 
more like the mob and less like me as a person. And so anything that's going to hide my individuality. And we see this in the lynch mobs of the, the Old South where it became easier to hurt another person if you were wearing the white robe of the Ku Klux Klan and your face was covered and no one could identify you as who you were, you were just a member of the group. Right. And so you could act differently because of that. Wow. So yeah. that, 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 I can see how that actually one place where that may play itself out in an unexpected way is with sporting events and, you know, thinking yeah. about how sometimes celebrations turn more violent than I think. And, and it's, you know, oftentimes hard for people to understand, like, why is it after winning a national championship that a college town may kind of turn to violence and flip over cars and things like that? Mm-hmm. In some ways, this yep. helps explain that. Yes, there's, they're wearing that same they're, – they're all wearing the same colors of the sports team. If it's a baseball team, they've got the hats that are kind of covering their faces a little bit. And right. they have that, that huge emotional surge of energy that's giving them this feeling of excitement. But in that excitement, if you see someone else trying to lift a car and toss it over their heads, you, you feel like, oh, yeah, that's what we should be doing, and you jump right in and, and start joining them. There's also this tendency when when we do a small action in a certain direction, it it changes us a little bit, and we become more likely to do further and further actions along that same path. My co-author called this a a continuum of destruction in a mob setting because um, if people start by just yelling, they become more likely to then swear. And if they're swearing at someone, they're more likely to then maybe throw a punch. And if they've thrown a punch, they're more likely to then pick up a stick and start hitting. So it, it, you, you get further and further along a path that you mm-hmm. probably would not have taken if you hadn't taken that first step. Right. So I'm, I'm, I need to ask, because you mentioned earlier online crowds, and yep. a thing I've been really fascinated by is some what I would, might define as online mobs, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Is is there, in your opinion, such a thing? You know, is there such a thing as an online mob? Uh, you know, a crowd of people intent on violence. I, I think there is. If there is a mm-hmm. sense that you are not alone, you are with a larger group of people within. Again, you're not physically in proximity. You're more emotionally connected, and you're connected through your words, and and you feel connected to these other people. So there is a shared purpose and a shared sense of connection. And if the group's intent is harm, then that's a mob because their intent is is hurt, and they're they're hurting through words and and images and and reputations, but it is still committing a violent act. Right. And I think, too, something you said earlier really uh, comes through here, and that is that when you're surrounded like by people who think the way you do, it, it serves to – it becomes this echo chamber. And thinking about the way sort of social media algorithms work to expose you only to people whose opinions are similar to yours or largely to people whose opinions are similar to yours probably exacerbates that impact, that effect. Yes, that's going to make that group polarization see it much stronger because you're you're not exposed to any counter arguments. You're only exposed to um, things that support your point of view, and so you start to feel like, well, this point of view is definitely right, and anyone who thinks opposite is is completely in the wrong because they're not 
how are they arguing against all of these other pieces of information, not recognizing they're actually getting different pieces of information? Right. Wow, this is really fascinating. Is there anything else you want to add as we start to wrap up here? Well, you asked me about the instigating conditions, and I, I sort of glossed over that and didn't really say anything. But but there are social and political and and kind of social climate cultural factors that that are going to play a role in mob violence. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to completely ignore that, so I feel like I should say something yeah, about please. those. Um, and that's so. So first off, there there are in in ninety percent of the cases that we looked at in writing this piece, um, there was a clear instigating event. There was a, uh, an assassination or a murder or somebody was found not guilty when the community felt that they were guilty. Or even, it doesn't actually have to be an actual thing. It could be a rumor of, of something, that, that a rumor of police brutality or actual police brutality. Um, and there are also some larger societal background conditions that, that play a part. But as I had said it, when I started to talk about the psychological factors, it's, it's, there are times when there's an instigating condition that doesn't lead to a, a mob forming, and there are other times when that, that instigating condition does. And one of the things that we've noticed about those social factors that, is, that people often find surprising is when people are experiencing sort of difficult life conditions, whether it's, it's racial injustice or, or poverty, um, we think that that's when they're going to start to protest and, and form a mob and try to fight back to try to change society. Um, and what we find is actually it's as situations improve that that's when people are more likely to form a mob. Hmm. And people expect that it's when you're kind of at the very bottom of the social strata, but it's not. It's as conditions are improving. And I feel like I'm seeing that in today's society and, and so I thought it was important to mention. Um, and what we think is, is what's, that, that's what's happening is that as our expectations of social improvements are increasing and we think that the world is getting better, but the world change happens at a slower pace than our expectations, mm-hmm. that the frustration increases exponentially. And that's when people actually will take to the streets or join together or start talking to each other about how frustrated they are and then all of these other processes start to play into it. And so I feel like we're seeing that with um, the, the police brutality that's occurring today and the reactions to police brutality where um, in terms of racial relationships that, that we're seeing people, we thought we'd be in so much of a better place today from right. where we were 40 years ago and yet here we still are. We're still not all getting along. We still have social injustices, and so the frustrations are building. Mm-hmm. Is and is it does it come from a sense of that things aren't happening fast enough? Does it come from a fear of uh, things are slipping back? Where, if you had to guess, because I think that is a surprising uh, observation. And so, if you had to guess, what drives that? I think it's that that we we have this expectation that wait this was supposed to be better now and okay. it's not and so it so that's what it was that that we we've done this already we we tried to fix this we've been fixing this for so long and it's not it's not where we thought it would be and so so that's just that trying to do something and then having evidence around you that that what you've been trying to do has failed or or and and the definition of failure I'm just saying it's just happening more slowly 
than we really had thought that it would, and that creates that sense of frustration. And then we talk about the frustration with our peers, and we start to experience that group polarization, and and then these other factors come into play. Wow. Okay. Um, anything else that we should know, or our listeners should know? Uh, I guess I guess a word of warning, um, because I think okay. one of the things we like to think is that that the people who would engage in mob violence are that there's a certain kind of person that would do it, and we could identify that kind of person. We have not been able to identify a a kind of person, a personality characteristic, or um, some kind of violent tendency. People who join a mob are just like you and I. They're just people who have gotten frustrated, who have gotten together into a group, and the circumstances around them push them into a direction that they didn't necessarily anticipate. And that's, that's I'm coming to that as a social psychologist because all of my work points to um, that situations have a tremendous impact, the immediate situation that we find ourselves in have a tremendous impact in shaping our current behavior in a way that we don't we don't necessarily realize. We feel like we have agency and we have control over the decisions we make and the behaviors that we engage in. And what social psychologists have found in numerous studies is that if I if you put people into a, a certain situation and constrain the situation, we know exactly how they'll behave mm-hmm. because it's the situation that is forcing them into that behavior yep. without their recognition. And I'm really glad that you said that because I think consistently I find people who say, but well, I would never do that, right? I would never act that way. And Earlier in the show, um, in another interview, I actually told a, a story about a guy I knew in college who went to Mardi Gras and actually ended up spending three days in jail because he <laughs> got he he got caught up in things and he yep. and he as part of a group threw a bench through the window of a store mm-hmm. and yep. he, he the only explanation he had for it was I just got caught up in things and it's what the crowd was doing and so I did it too and yep. you know and it, it it would be easy to say well there's obviously something wrong with this guy but there sounds like there's more to it than that. Yeah, I think that that given the right social environment, the right social situation that we that any one of us in those circumstances mm-hmm. might do the same actions. So I would, I guess, I would encourage people to to empathize with people in different life circumstances, so that we can right. um, try to build connections and bridges instead of yeah. tearing them apart through through violence. We've been talking about a particular situation that can bring out the worst in people. But there's another situation, much more common, where people can sometimes lose control. It's important to distinguish between aggressive driving and road rage. Um, uh, Road rage is a criminal offense. I think most people think they're synonyms, but they're not. Um, The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration defines aggressive driving as the operation of a motor vehicle in a manner which endangers or is likely to endanger persons or property. Uh, Road rage is actually a criminal offense, and it's defined as an assault with a motor vehicle or other dangerous weapon by the operator or passengers of a motor vehicle, like colliding into other vehicles or colliding into pedestrians or shooting pedestrians from inside a car, that sort of thing. And that will be next time on All the Rage. Until then, keep it cool. All the Rage is produced by Kate Farley out of Phoenix Studios. Our podcast art was created by Kimberly Vlees, and our music was created by V6 Beats. 
Special thanks to all our guests in this episode and to the Widener Center. Finally, thanks to Haley Falcon, our intern, who does all sorts of great things to keep this show amazing. 